chapter 2 of the Weapon of Prayer by Ian Bounds. Putting God to Work The assertion voiced in the title given this chapter is but another way of declaring that God has, of his own motion, placed himself under the law of prayer and has obliged himself to answer the prayers of men. He has ordained prayer as a means whereby he will do things through men as they pray, which he would not otherwise do. Prayer is a specific divine appointment, an ordinance of heaven, whereby God purposes to carry out his gracious designs on earth and to execute and make efficient the plan of salvation. When we say that prayer puts God to work, it is simply to say that man has it in his power by prayer to move God to work in his own way among men, in which way we would not work if prayer was not made. Thus, while prayer moves God to work, at the same time God puts prayer to work. As God has ordained prayer, and as prayer has no existence separate from men, but involves men, then logically prayer is the one force which puts God to work in earth's affairs through men and their prayers. Let this fundamental truth concerning God and prayer be kept in mind in all allusions to prayer and in all our readings of the incidences of prayer in the scriptures. If prayer puts God to work on earth, then by the same token, prayerlessness rules God out of the world's affairs and prevents him from working. And if prayer moves God to work in this world's affairs, then prayerlessness excludes God from everything concerning men and leaves man on earth the mere creature of circumstances at the mercy of blind faith or without help of any kind from God. It leaves God in this world with its tremendous responsibilities and its difficult problems and with all of its sorrows, burdens, and afflictions without any God at all. In reality, the denial of prayer is a denial of God himself. For God and prayer are so inseparable that they can never be divorced. Prayer affects three different spheres of existence, the divine, the angelistic, and the human. It puts God to work, it puts angels to work, and it puts men to work. It lays its hands upon God, angels, and men. What a wonderful reach there is in prayer. It brings into play the forces of heaven and earth. God, angels, and men are subjects of this wonderful law of prayer. And all of these have to do with the possibilities and the results of prayer. God has so far placed himself subject to prayer that by reason of his own appointment he is induced to work among men in a way in which he does not work if men do not pray. Prayer lays hold upon God and influences him to work. This is the meaning of prayer as it concerns God. This is the doctrine of prayer or else there is nothing whatever in prayer. Prayer puts God to work in all things prayed for. While man in his weakness and poverty waits, trusts, and prays, God undertakes the work. For from old men have heard, have not heard, for from old 
men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen a God besides thee, which worketh for him that waiteth for thee. Jesus Christ commits himself to the force of prayer, quote, Whatsoever ye ask in my name, unquote, he says, quote, That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it, unquote. And again, quote, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it should be done unto you, unquote. In no other energy is the promise of God committed as to that of prayer. Upon no other force are the purposes of God so dependent as this one of prayer. The word of God dilates on the results and necessity of prayer. The work of God stays or advances as prayer puts forth its strength. Prophets and angels have urged the utility, force, and necessity of prayer. Quote, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give him no rest, till he establish and until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Unquote. Prayer, with its antidotes and attendants, A-N-T-E-C-E-T-E-N-T-S, and attendants is the one and only condition of the final triumph of the gospel. It is the one and only condition which honors the Father and glorifies the Son. Little and poor praying has weakened Christ's power on earth, postponed the glorious results of his reign, and retired God from his sovereignty. Prayer puts God's work in his hands and keeps it there. It looks to him constantly and depends on him implicitly to further his own cause. Prayer is but faith resting in, acting with, leaning on, and obeying God. That is why God loves it so well, why he puts all power into its hands, and why he is so highly esteems and why he so highly esteems men of prayer. Every movement for the advancement of the gospel must be created by and inspired by prayer. In all these movements of God, prayer proceeds and attends as an invariable and necessary condition. In this relation, God makes prayer identical in force and power with himself and says to those on earth who pray, You are on earth to carry on my cause. I am in heaven, the Lord of all, the maker of all, the Holy One of all. Now, whatever you need for my cause, ask me and I will do it. Shape the future by your prayers, and all that you need for present supplies, command me. I made heaven and earth and all things in them. Ask largely. Open my mouth wide, and I will fill it. It is my work which you are doing. It concerns my cause. Be prompt and full in praying. Do not abate your asking, and I will not wince nor abate in my giving. Everywhere in his word, God conditions his actions on prayer. Everywhere in his word, his actions and attitude are shaped by prayer. To quote all the scriptural passages which prove the immediate, direct, and personal relation of prayer to God would be to transfer whole pages of the scripture to this study. Man has personal relations with God. 
Prayer is the divinely appointed means by which man comes into direct connection with God. By his own ordinance, God holds himself bound to hear prayer. God bestows his great good on his children when they seek it along the avenue of prayer. When Solomon closed his great prayer, which he offered at the dedication of the temple, God appeared to him, approved him, and laid down the universal principles of his action. Second Chronicles 7, 12-15 We read as follows, quote, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open, and my ears attentive, to the prayer that is made in this place. Unquote. In his purposes concerning the Jews in the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah 29, 10-13, God asserts his unfailing principles. Quote, For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you, in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart." Unquote. In Bible terminology, prayer means calling upon God for things we desire, asking things of God. Thus we read, quote, Call upon me, and I will answer thee, and will show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not, unquote. Jeremiah 33.3 Quote, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, unquote. Psalms 50.15 Quote, Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am, unquote. Isaiah 58.9 Prayer is revealed as a direct application to God for some temporal or spiritual good. It is an appeal to God to intervene in life's affairs for the good of those for whom we pray. God is, a, God is recognized as the source and fountain of all good, and prayer implies that all his good is held in his keeping for those who call upon him in truth. That prayer is an application to God communicating with God and communion with God comes out strongly and simply in the praying of Old Testament saints. Abraham's intercession for Sodom is a striking illustration of the nature of prayer. Communicating with God and showing the intercessory side of prayer. The declared purpose of God to destroy Sodom confronted Abraham and his soul within him was greatly moved because of his great interest in that fated city. His nephew and family resided there. That purpose of God must be changed. God's decree for the destruction of this evil city's inhabitants must be revoked. It was no small undertaking which faced Abraham 
when he conceived the idea of beseeching God to spare Sodom. Abraham sets himself to change God's purpose and to save Sodom with the other cities in, of the plain. It was certainly a most difficult and delicate work for him to undertake, to throw his influence with God in favor of those doomed cities so as to save them. He bases his plea on the simple fact of the number of righteous men who could be found in Sodom and appeals to the infinite recitative of God not to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Thus be far from thee to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? With what deep self-abasement and reverency does Abraham enter upon his high and divine work? He stood before God in solemn awe and meditation, and then drew near to God and spoke. <coughs> he advanced, step by step in faith, in demand and urgency, and God granted every request he made. It was... It has been well said that Abraham left off asking before God left off granting. It seems that Abraham had a kind of optimistic view of the piety of Sodom. He scarcely expected, when he undertook this matter, to have it end in failure. He was greatly in earnest and had every encouragement to press his case. In his final request, he surely thought that with wife, with Lot, his wife, his daughters, his sons, and his sons-in-laws. He had ten righteous people, ten righteous persons, for whose sake God would spare the city. But alas, the count failed when the final test came. There were not ten righteous people in that large population. But this was true. If he did not save Solomon by his importunate praying, the purpose of God were stayed for a season. And possibly had not Abraham's goodness of heart overestimated the number of pious people in that devoted city, God might have saved it had Abraham reduced his figures still further. This is a representative case illustrative of Old Testament praying and disclosing God's mode of working through prayer. It shows further how God is moved to work in answer to prayer in this world even when it comes to changing his purposes concerning the sinful community. This praying of Abraham was no mere performance, no dull, lifeless ceremony, but an earnest plea, a strong advocacy, advocacy to secure a desired end, to have an influence, one person with another person. How full of meaning is this series of remarkable intercessions made by Abraham. Here we have arguments designed to convince God and pleased to persuade God to change his purpose. We see deep humility, but holy boldness as well, perseverance and advances made based on victory of each petition. Here we have enlarged asking encouraged by enlarged answers. God stays and answers as long as Abraham stays and asks. To Abraham, God is resistant, approachable, and all-powerful. But at the same time, he defers to men, acts favorably on their desires, and grants them favors asked for. Not to pray is a denial of God, a denial of his existence, a denial of his nature, and a denial of his purposes towards mankind. 
God has specifically to do with prayer, promises, in their breath, certainty, and limitations. Jesus Christ presses us into the presence of God with these prayer promises, not only by the assurance that God will answer, but also that no other being but God can answer. He presses us to God because only in this way can we move God to take a hand in earth's affairs and induce him to intervene on our behalf. Quote, All things whatsoever ye ask in prayer, believing, ye, sh ye shall receive, unquote, says Jesus. And this all-comprehensive condition not only presses us to pray for all things, everything great and small, but it also sets us on and shuts us up to God. For who but God could can cover the illimitable of universal things and can assure us certainly of receiving the very thing for which we may ask in all the um, thoroughs of earthly and heavenly goods. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who makes demands on us to pray. And it is he who puts himself in all he has so fully in the answer. He it is who puts himself at our service and answers our demands when we pray. And just as he puts himself and the Father at our command in prayer to come directly into our lives and to work for our good, so also does he engage to answer the demands of two or more believers who are agreed as touching any one thing. Quote, If two of you shall agree on earth, as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven, unquote. None but God could put himself in a covenant so binding as that, for only God could fulfill such a promise, and could reach to its exacting and all the controlling demands. Only God can answer for the promises. God needs prayer, and man needs prayer too. It is indispensable to God's work in this world and is essential to getting God to work in earth's affairs. So God binds men to pray for the most solemn obligations. God commands men to pray. And so not to pray is plain disobedience to an imperative command of Almighty God. Prayer is such a condition without which the graces, the salvation, and the good of God are not bestowed on men. Prayer is a high privilege, a royal prerogative. Manifold and eternal are the losses when we fail to exercise it. Prayer is the great universal force to advance God's cause. The reverency which hallows God's name, the ability to do God's will, and the establishment of God's kingdom in the hearts of the children of men. These and their coincidences and agencies are created and affected by prayer. One of the constitutional enforcements of the gospel is prayer. Without prayer, the gospel can either be preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life. And for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out, and his work cannot progress without him. The movements which God purposed under Cyrus, king of Persia, prophesied about by Isaiah many years before Cyrus was born, are conditioned on prayer. God declares his purpose, power, independency, and defiancy of obstacles in the way of him carrying out his purposes. His omnipotence, 
and absolute infinite power is said to encourage prayer. He has been ordering all events, directing all conditions, and creating all things, that he might answer prayer, and then turns himself over to his praying ones to be commanded. And then all the results and power he holds in his hands will be bestowed on lavish and unmeasured um, monifis, that's M-U-N-I-F-I-C-E-N-C-E, to carry out prayers and to make prayer the mightiest energy in the world. The passage in Isaiah, chapter 46, is too lengthy to be quoted in its entirety, but it is well worth reading. It closes with, with such strong words as these, words about prayer, which are the climax of all which God had been saying concerning his purpose in connection with Cyrus. Quote, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker. Ask of me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. Unquote. In the conclusion of the history of Job, we see how God intervenes in behalf of Job and calls upon his friends to to present themselves before Job, that he may pray for them. Quote, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, unquote, is God's statement. And the further words added, quote, My servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, unquote. A striking illustration of God's intervening to deliver God, Job's friends in answer to Job's prayer. We have hitherto four spoken of prayer affecting God, angels, and men. Christ wrote nothing while living. Memorandums, notes, sermon writing, sermon making, railing to him. Autobiography was not his taste. The revelation of John was his last utterance. In that book, we have pictured the great importance, the priceless value, and the high position which prayer obtains in the movement, history, and unfolding progress of God's church in this world. We have this picture in Romans 8.3, discussing the interest the angels in heaven have in their prayers of the saints and accomplishing the answers to those prayers. Quote, and another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came from came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, cast it upon the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings in an earthquake. Translated, oh, unquote, translated into the pose of everyday life, these words show how the capital stock by which heaven carries on the business of salvation under Christ is made up of the prayers of God's saints on earth, and discloses how these prayers and flaming power can, uh, flaming power come back to earth and produce its mighty commotions, influences, and revolutions. Praying men are essential to Almighty God in all His plans and purposes. God's secrets, counsel, and cause may never have, may never been committed to prayerless men. Have never been committed to prayerless men. 
Neglect of prayer has always brought loss of faith, loss of love, and loss of prayer. Failure to pray has been the baneful, inevitable cause of backsliding and estrangement from God. Prayerless men have stood in the way of God fulfilling His word and doing His will on earth. They tie the divine hands and interfere with God in His gracious designs. As praying men are a help to God, so prayerless men are a hindrance to Him. We press the scriptural view of the necessity of prayer, even at the cost of repetition. The subject is too important for repetition to weaken or tire, too vital to be trite or tame. We must feel it anew. The fires of prayer have burned low. Ashes and not, and not flames are on its altars. No insistency in the scriptures is more pressing than prayer. No exhortations is more often reiterated. None is more hearty, none is more solemn and stirring than to pray. No principle is more strongly and broadly declared than that which urges us to pray. There is no duty to which we are more strongly obliged than the obligation to pray. There is no command more imperative and insistent than that of praying. Art thou praying in everything without ceasing, in the closet hidden from the eyes of men, and praying always and everywhere? This is the personal, pertinent, and all-important question for every soul. Many instances occur in God's Word showing that God intervenes in this world to answer to prayer. Nothing is clearer when the Bible is consulted than that the Almighty God is brought directly into the things of this world by the praying of His people. Jonah flees from duty and takes ship for a distant port, but God follows him, and by a strange providence, this disobedient prophet is cast out of the vessel. And the God who sent him to Nineveh prepares a fish to swallow him. In the fish's belly he cries out to the God against whom he had sinned. And God intervenes and causes the fish to vomit Jonah out on dry land. Even the fish of the great deep is subject to the law of prayer. Likewise, the birds of the air are brought into subjection to this same law. Elijah had foretold of Ahab the coming of his prolonged drought, and food and even water became scarce. God sent him to the brook um, Cher, C-H-E-R-I-T-H, and said unto him, quote, It shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And the ravens brought bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, unquote. Can anyone doubt that this man of God, who later on shut up and, and opened the rain clouds by prayer, was not praying about this time when so much was at stake. God interposed among the birds of the air this time and strangely moved them to take care of his servant, so that he was not lack so he would not lack food and water. David in an evil hour, instead of listening to the advice of Joab, his prime minister, yielded to the suggestion of Satan and counted the people, which displeased God. So God told him to choose one of the three evils as a um retribution for his folly and sin. Pestilence came among the people in violent form, and David betakes himself to prayer. Quote, and David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that had sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me, and my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. 
unquote. First Chronicles 21.17 And though God had been greatly grieved by, at David for numbering Israel, yet he could not resist this appeal of a pertinent and prayerful spirit. And God was moved by prayer to put his hand on the springs of disease and stop the fearful plague. God was put to work by David's prayer. Numbers of other cases could be named. These are sufficient. God seems to have taken great pains in his divine revelation to men to show how he interferes in earth's affairs in answer to the praying of his saints. The question might arise just here in some overcritical minds who are not strong believers in prayer as to the so-called laws of nature, as if there was a conflict between what they call the laws of nature and the law of prayer. These people make nature a sort of imaginary God, entirely separate of Almighty God. What is nature anyways? It is but the creation of God, the maker of all things. And what are the laws of nature, the laws of God, through which he governs the material world? As the law of prayer is also the law of God, there cannot possibly be any conflict between the two sets of laws, but all must work in perfect harmony. Prayer does not violate any natural law. God may set aside one law for a higher working of another law, and this he may do when he answers prayer. Or, Almighty God may answer prayer working through the course of natural law. But whether or not we understand working through the course of natural law, no. Or Almighty God may answer prayer, or Almighty God may answer prayer working through the course of natural law. But whether or not we understand it, God is over and above all nature and can and will answer prayer in a wise, intelligent, and just manner, even though man may not comprehend it. So in no sense is there any discord or conflict between God's several laws and when God is induced to interfere with human affairs and answer to prayer. In this connection, another word might be said. We use the form of words to which there can be no objection, that prayer does certain things. But this, of course, implies not that prayer as a human means accomplishes anything, but that prayer only accomplishes things instrumentally. Prayer is the instrument. God is the efficient and active agent. So prayer in itself does not interfere in earth's affairs, but prayer in the hands of men moves God to intervene and do things which he would not otherwise do if prayer was not used as the instrument. It is, as we say, faith hath saved thee, by which is simply meant that God, through the faith of sinners, saves him, faith being the only instrument 